So go ahead and find a posture that feels relaxed yet alert for you. If you want to come here and sit in the front, that's also totally fine. And just as we start to settle into our posture, into our seat, into our bodies, just see what feels good to you as you start to create a presence, an uplifting sense in your body. So I was talking about this sense of uplifting. Sometimes we start this by just taking some uh, uh, a posture where we feel uh, self-respect, where we feel confidence. What's it like if we allow the back to straighten, to feel comfortable with that, to let the shoulders come back and down, the chin slightly down, the feet planted firmly on the earth. If you'd like to close your eyes, that's fine. I also recommend keeping them open slightly. This can help when we're a little bit sleepy, especially these times at night. And just right away, I want to invite you into not doing anything. Just be with the body. Sometimes when we come into our meditation practice, we make it a big deal. And then we form this idea or concept that we need some state or we need some special experience out of it. What if we drop that? And we simply just start relating to nowness within our experience, relating to how your feet feel touching the earth, how your legs, sits bones connected to the seat below you feel. Your hands, your arms, your midsection, your chest, your head, your throat. So to me, a lot of Buddhist meditation, especially awareness meditation, is really aimed at growing our capacity to just be without the overlays of our projections about ourselves and our reality. So we practice just being. But there's awareness, just this simple state of mind that knows observes and can bear witness to our experience. Right now, maybe bearing, bearing witness to your embodied experience. And for those of you where you need a little bit more of a solid anchor, the Buddha taught to bear witness to the breathing body, to the breath in the body. So if you'd like to start to attune or attend to the breath as you breathe in and out of the nose, if you need that as an anchor right now, go for it. But the greater attitude we're cultivating here is simply to be, be and rest in a sense of nowness. And so we could say if we summed all of medita meditation awareness or meditative awareness up, we would sum it up in a cultivation of nowness. So for some of you who are newish or intermediate practitioners, what happens when we cultivate nowness? The monkey mind doesn't like it. The monkey mind wants a job. It wants something to do. So we're going to give it something to do. Pay attention to the breath. 
pay attention to the body. So when the monkey mind takes you all over the place, running into the past, running into the future, how bored you are, how cold you are, how happy you are, whatever it is, notice and come back to your anchor, breath, body, nowness. So we'll practice like that for the next 15 minutes. Just being gentle, a lot of kindness, a lot of compassion, space for the experience. Like I said, we're not cultivating a state, we're cultivating presence.
So there's nothing wrong with you if the mind wanders. The mind is going to wander. So the sooner we can let go of the judgment of whether we're practicing it right or not, the sooner we can get down to business. So our job is to recognize when the mind wanders. Our job is to not cultivate craving or aversion towards that. Just simply to notice, to be aware of that. And if we're working with an anchor, just returning to that anchor. If we're working with awareness itself, just returning to awareness. So ultimately it's not a problem because our natural state is awareness. We've just lost track of it. And so we're simply coming back to it. We're practicing with the illusion that we're cultivating something. When actually what we're doing is removing what we're not. So how can we bring in a sense of warmth in the process?
I'm just giving our attention, awareness, to the body and breath, to our experience of sound, our experience of the other senses as well as mind. We're going to slowly let go of the anchor of practice and just simply let yourself rest in presence. So maybe you've noticed in the short time something shifted in the body and the mind. Be with that. So let go of the meditation, but we are not letting go of meditating. There's still awareness. Just simply let yourself rest in that in a relaxed way for a minute or so. We call this meditative awareness without support. There's no anchor or support for practice, just simply resting in present moment awareness itself. And we need to let go a little bit for that to happen. So we don't fall asleep, but we drop. Drop the ideas of whether we had a good meditation or a bad meditation. Dropping the concepts of what meditation is. Just simply be. Shifting now into our intentions practice, which is more of an active contemplation. We're just going to do this for a few minutes to prepare for the talk. I like to do this in a more experiential way as it becomes less conceptual. So I'm going to invite you into a practice of imagining a loved one in front of you. This can be a partner, a friend, a son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew, could be a pet if you'd like. Just take a second to conjure who you'd like to work with tonight. Or you can just let it arise intuitively. It might be a surprise to you. And here we're going to use all of the capacities of our imagination, which includes visual imagery, if you want to imagine them in your mind's eye our felt sense perception, feeling them in the room with us, and a sense of meaning, a meaningful relationship, just taking joy in how we're connected to them. And we're gonna reach for a very gentle contemplation of just com contemplating and reflecting on this person's qualities. Can we evoke a sense of deep value and warmth towards them? Just a sense of appreciation, 
or gratitude. Seeing them in their wholeness rather than what they lack. Seeing them in the qualities that you truly appreciate in your life and why they came up for you in the first place. And if this becomes emotional for you, that's okay. Use that emotion as a gateway. If you start to feel a warmth in your heart, a vulnerability in the center of your body, shift your attention to that. Be with that warmth. We're attuning to that. We're entering into a space of interdependent relationship with this person. And from here, if you can have that reflected back to you, go ahead and do that. You're also included. So the value you see in them is also the value you can see in yourself, the worth you can see in yourself. And if that's hard for you right now or it's too overwhelming or triggering, just work with the person in front of you, just sending a sense of warmth towards them. And then expanding that, just gently contemplating what separates this person from anyone else other than that we're close to them and we have a personal relationship with them. Don't all beings want to be happy? Don't all beings want to be free from suffering and its causes? We spend our lives finding meaning through trying to find joy, love, connection, worth, purpose. All beings want this. So can we widen our, ho- our heart out further to include these beings? especially to include the special intention that our discussion, practice, contemplation tonight can become a real cause for us to deeply transform ourselves for the benefit of these beings. So here we're taking direct responsibility. It's not that there's all these problems out there in the world and we're here without efficacy or agency. Our agency lies in how we're willing to open our heart and work with our own awakening. So in Buddhism, our own awakening is connected to the awakening of others. And it comes from this very seed of warmth. That's the seed of it. So in whatever way you can relate to this right now, as a concept or as a feeling, just stay with that for a few more moments. You can stay with that as I do some chanting. And this chanting in Tibetan is taking, it's called the Three Refuges, as well as generating this mind of bodhicitta that I just described. Sangye Chodan Sangye Chonam Janju Bardu Dani Kyam Suji Tagi jin soi pe sonam ki Trala penchir sangye druparshom Sangye chodan zogi chonam 
Chamsu Bardu Dani Kamsu Chi Dagi Jinsu Gipe Sonam Ki Trala Penshir Sange Drupar Sange Chodan Sogi Chonam Chanchu Bardu Dani Kamsu Chi Tagi Jinsoi Ki Trola Penshir Sange So gently shifting the body. See if you can carry the awareness that we've been cultivating, that warmth that we just worked with back into the room. So as you open your eyes, just try to stay within the body, not coming out of yourself to meet the room. Just staying here and then you welcome the rest of the environment. Okay. Thanks for your practice. <laughs> so, I guess I'm going to give a talk on Buddha nature tonight. <laughs> Has anybody heard of this term before? Yes? yes? All right. Um, I wanted to start off uh, reading um, a section of a teaching from uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, who's the, the brother of my teacher, Soknyur Rinpoche. Um, I just came across this today when I was studying and I really liked it and I thought it was uh, really applicable to, to sort of maybe introducing Buddha nature a little bit. He doesn't talk a lot about Buddha nature in this particular um, excerpt, but I think it kind of sets up a, a little bit of like this inquiry or question into like, what are we really doing with meditation practice? What are the possibilities, right? And you all know probably by now, those of you who come to my last three talks here, I kind of come and like to, you know, challenge you a little bit, like in a, in a gentle way. Uh, and it, it includes me. I'm not challenging you. It's more around sort of, you know, generally, what are we doing with this, you know? Um, using our time really wisely and meaningfully. I think that's the reason I bring it up. So uh, this title, Meditation in Daily Life, uh, and I'll just, I'll just read it and we can go from there. This is from Mingyur Rinpoche. Um, Nowadays, people learn meditation for peace, for stress reduction, or for blissing out. <laughs> These efforts have some positive aspects, especially if one identifies the mind as the source of difficulties and the source of happiness. But often, these efforts fall into the category of meditation as an activity that has a beginning and an end. Quote, now I'm meditating, and later I'm not meditating, end quotes. The dilemma here is that any positive results of the meditation tend to be short-lived. There's little attention paid to integrating meditation with daily activities. Meditation has been separated from the view and intention of wisdom and compassion. A meditation muscle may be developed, but the purpose is not clear, so it remains difficult to discover genuine liberation. The real measure is what happens off the cushion. If there is no sign of change in daily life activities, then the full benefits of meditation are not being accomplished. 
If our neighbor's dog pees on our lawn or the waiter brings our soup cold or our flight is canceled and we become as angry or exasperated as we did before, we have restarted to meditate, then something is missing. When we understand the view, we know we are where we are headed and we can apply this to all our daily life activities. The view is the understanding that our true nature, the essence of awareness itself, is fundamentally pure and whole and has all the wonderful qualities that normally we think we lack. Without carrying this view into our activities, formal sitting practice may become dry and lifeless. We might end up like dolls sitting perfectly still on the shelves of toy stores. It might look like we're doing everything right, yet somehow awakening remains beyond reach. <laughs> A little bit intense, right? <laughs> A little bit of a wake-up call. So mainly this last paragraph is why I wanted to read this, where he says, when we understand the view, we know where we're headed, we can and we can apply this to all of our daily life and activities. So from a Buddhist perspective, um, meditation is not just aimless. Um, it's, you know, we, we often, what we do in a, in a more uh, traditional setting is we apply a lot of uh, learning uh, slash study and contemplation before we meditate. And the reason why we do that is not to become intellectuals and scholars of Dharma, but to actually have some context and understanding of where we're going, right, as Mingyur Rinpoche just pointed it out. And we call this view in Buddhism. And I think I may, may have talked about this last time a little bit. And, and this view is, is, you know, I'll talk about the view of Buddhism, but the idea of view, like the overall idea, is not something that foreign to us in the sense that in our daily life, we have a view of what we want to do that day or an idea or an intention, right? And then we take action to bring that about. And so the Buddhist path or, or the path of meditation is, is, is completely similar. It's not dissimilar to that. We, we have to cultivate an idea of, of where we want to go and what's possible, right? And so as Mingyur Rinpoche is pointing out, um, there's a lot of different things we can get out of meditation. I, I hear from some students, I think, a lack of uh, awareness that sort of, oh, if I just show up and do it, amazing things are going to happen. That's not necessarily true. I just, just you know, sort of be the bearer of bad news. Um, just like anything in our life, we have to gain clarity. And so in Buddha Dharma, clarity comes from the Dharma. It comes from the teachings. It comes from, you know, being here, uh, discussing together, you know, listening to me, blah, blah, blah. That's part of this too, right? And so I... I I appreciate that you're here, and obviously you understand this to a certain degree. And then, and then the practice becomes, how do we bring that view into our life? And that's where meditation comes in, right? So meditation is like the bridge between the, the idea of what we want to get used to, or the, or the view of where we're going, and getting there, right? Meditation is that bridge. So what I wanted to talk about as view tonight, uh, as something that we, we may want to get used to, and again, I, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm just guessing, you know, some of you are not Buddhist nor interested in becoming Buddhist, and that's totally fine. Uh, this kind of idea or view of Buddha nature, it's actually not Buddhist in the sense. I mean, Buddhism, if we look at the history of it, even the word itself is a, is a colonial word. Um, I mean, the Buddha didn't consider it Buddhism. <laughs> he just taught w awakening. He taught a path to awakening. I also want to point out it's also meaningful to honor tradition and hold it as a lineage. That's also very meaningful. So it doesn't mean either or, right? It means we have a cup. My teacher, Sokhmir Mishai, likes to talk about a cupless cup. 
So we have a cup, but we also, so we understand that, that we can use a cup to fill it with something, but we're not grabbing and holding onto the cup and squashing it. Does that make sense? So we can hold the, the traditions nicely. We don't have to throw them out, but we also don't have to uh, apply all of our grasping and craving to them. We just hold them nicely, and they become a cupless cup eventually. So this view of Buddha nature, um, like I said, I don't think it's essentially Buddhist because the word Buddha in Sanskrit just means awakening. It means to awaken. And so awakening or to awaken is a huge, huge concept. Actually, it's beyond concept. So part of the problem here when we start discussing awakening is we're discussing something in a conceptual way because that's the only really... That's all we can do right now with each other, at least that's my limitation of what I can do with you. I have to communicate it with words. Um, and so there is a paradox in there where we're talking about something beyond concepts, beyond constructs, yet we're talking about it with constructs and concepts. So I just want to acknowledge that, right? And this is also why I think um, it challenges us a lot because awakening is something beyond what we can know with our thinking mind or with our conceptual mind um, it can be, I wouldn't say frustrating, but it can just be challenging. And so what I will say is that when we use words, when we use uh, 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 a philosophical context to describe this, which is what I'm going to do tonight, and just sort of with some experiential uh, anecdotes, anecdotes um, the, the whole idea is we can get closer to the door. You know, what we say as a, as a, as a metaphor or analogy in Buddhism, it's like the, the Dharma... As, as spoken by a teacher or read in a book or, you know, that we memorize in our minds um, is, is like a finger pointing at the moon. So the Dharma, the, the teaching is the finger, right? And so you can see by what I'm saying too, the finger is also like the cup where we don't have to grasp at the finger, but we also have to recognize the finger is very powerful and useful because it's helping us to understand, oh, the moon is there and it's something, some blob in the sky, right? And at first, we start to see the moon in a certain way. And then as we practice, as we meditate, that moon becomes more and more clear. And then eventually, you know, we are the moon, right? And that's what awakening is, as, as if we could use the metaphor of it. So we need something to point. And, and, and that's what the teachings on Buddha nature really are. I find them to be um, pretty much essential. I think if we practice Buddhism without an understanding of Buddha nature, uh, I'm not sure the path is going to go quite well for us. Um, and one of the reasons is we have a very strong habit, and I don't think this is a Western habit or uh, uh, particular to any one culture, but we have a strong habit of, of fixating around uh, uh, our path, around our identities around something, around our, 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 our uh, personalities of who we are as a meditator or not a meditator or this or that, right? And the teachings on Buddha nature start to inform us that actually we're more than what we feel and grasp on a daily basis. We're much more than that. And also I think what's tricky here, and I, I just wanted to put it out there for your reflection, because um, uh, I, I find it to be a cultural thing too. This now is a cultural thing, what, what I'm going to describe, is um, you know, I find nothing wrong with Judeo-Christian traditions personally, um, but they do have a different layout from what Buddhism is doing. And, and, and when we study Buddhism, we can start to recognize that more. For instance, they don't have explicit teachings on emptiness and Buddha nature, like what we're going to talk about tonight. But, I, but I'm sure some of their practitioners have realized emptiness, right? That can happen when one opens one's heart really wide, things like that. 
But explicitly in the philosophy, I, I haven't seen it. So, um, and that's not a criticism, it's just sort of being clear uh, in our distinctions when we're talking kind of form and conceptual form and philosophy. So with that, um, our culture is generally has a very Abrahamic view of things. Uh, it's a residue, I think, in all of us, myself included, whether we grew up religious or not. It's just there. And so when we talk about Buddha nature, there can be an idea that we're talking about something out there or a soul or some place we have to get or um, something that's fixed in reality and we just have to like clear away all the crap of, of, of what we're dealing with now or all the bad stuff of who we are and then we're going to get the Buddha nature, right? And Buddhism says, no, 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 that's not how it is. So, it's, it's, so I just want to point that out because it's actually a radical shift from how we normally think. And I would say normally as just human beings in general, and then especially <clears throat> when there's a strong tendency to, uh, to, to theism, as well as uh, I've, I've been watching this, this show Messiah, which is an awesome show on Netflix. I've been really enjoying it. But there's a big thing about a savior complex in there they're talking about, which is really interesting. And Buddhism doesn't have a savior complex so much. So sometimes this gets imputed on the teaching. So I just want to point it out because it might save some of you some <clears throat> hassle. So, so then what is Buddha nature? If it's not a soul, if it's not a thing, if it's not, you know, some state or some planet we go to when we become awakened, you know? I think maybe some people think we become awakened and, you know, we go off to some paradise. No, no, no. That's not what Buddhism teaches, really. So, so what is it then, yeah? So Buddha nature is really the fundamental... So, see, I have to use terms here that describe it as something. So that's a problem in itself, I just want to point out. It's a language problem, right? But Buddha nature is really uh, our fundamental nature at its essence stripped away of all that is not part of that, or that, it, that it's not. In essence, it's nothing whatsoever, yet compassion can arise from it, loving kindness can arise from it, uh, uh, activity can, can happen out of it, but there's no one doing that activity. There's no one having or holding that compassion. There's no one uh, uh, being that loving person, right? So it's a very, see what I'm already, I see some confused faces. It's a very difficult thing to describe. But, uh, and, and I'll describe it in a lot of different ways. I'm just kind of starting in the deep end. So Buddha nature actually could be used at analogous to um, the view of emptiness we talk about in Buddhism. And, and so we do have to talk a little bit about emptiness to talk about Buddha nature. Now, emptiness, for those of you who new, are new to that term or are wondering what it means, it doesn't mean nothingness. Uh, the term is shunya, shunyata in, in Sanskrit. What it simply means is a lack of, uh, at its root, uh, a lack of what projections we're overlaying on our experience about who we think we are, what we think phenomena are, others are, experiences. And so, at its true root, things exist interdependently. They exist impermanently. And they exist in multiplicity, made of parts, right? So emptiness is just simply pointing to the nature of how things actually are, which are not fixed, not solid, uh, not uh, true in the sense that we can find something where we can put our finger and say, that's it. There's the cushion. Now, I'll just give you an example. Just We could use simple examples to talk about emptiness. Where is the bell? See? So we, These kinds of things are fun. You're welcome to talk if you want. It looks like it's here, right? 
And I'm not, and, okay, we'll, we'll get there. It looks like it's here, yeah? It appears to you as a bell, no? That we can ring, it makes a sound, it does all the things that tell you this is a bell. Yet which part of this is the bell? Is this side the bell? This side? If we broke this off or melted it, is that the bell? So we could see. We could take this down. And modern science, you know, uh, they have theories on this. So it's not foreign to, to our Western views either. So we could see. We can't actually find a bell in any one part of it because it's dependent upon the whole to be a bell. And even when it's a bell... It, when all the parts are together to make it a bell and have the reaction of, of it dinging in our label of the bell, our mind is still labeling it the bell. It still needs a person or an experiencer to say that's the bell, right? Yet, out of all of that, and this is why it's not nihilism or non-existence or voidness, out of all of that, with the bell, we, knowing the bell's appearing to us, yet we can't find a part of the bell, something that's inherently existent or truly existent as the bell, it still rings. It still appears to us. We can still interact with it. So this is the magic of emptiness in Buddhism. The magic that phenomena, self, thoughts, all continue to appear. Yet when we look into some findable essence, we can't find it. Right? So why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because what the Buddha taught is that's the root of suffering. Why? Because when we see the bell and we believe it's a truly existent bell, that it doesn't depend on its parts, when we have that almost innate grasping at it, we create suffering. Maybe not so much with the bell, but you can see this with other things in our life. We have reactions to it. We have ideas. This is good. This is bad. This is bad enough that I'm going to throw it out in the street, right? And then what happens from that? Reactions. Cause and effect. We also have another word for it in Buddhism, karma, right? And so this... It's not this and the appearance and our experience of it that bind us. It's how, how we're relating to that appearance and then what comes after that appearance. Because then we create suffering from there. So that's what the Buddha saw. That's why at the root of, of Buddhist meditation, it has to eventually point us in that direction. That's what the, the finger is pointing at the moon. right? So this is also essential to the Buddha nature. Because if the Buddha nature was a thing, it would be findable. It would be easy. We would just do one thing, take a pill, Buddha nature, right? <laughs> but it's not like that. Buddha nature, so, so Buddha nature is actually, uh, uh, in its essence, is, is, not, is just like this bell. It's unfindable as some kind of thing, yet it appears, and qualities can come out of that. So the Buddha talked about this uh, when he first attained awakening uh, under the Bodhi tree. So for all you who know the Buddha's life story, I'm not going to go into it, but you know, at, at, right before he attained enlightenment, he decided, I'm just going to sit under this tree. I'm not going to move until I attain awakening. Right? And he sat under there practicing. And, and his experience of this nature of reality, of emptiness, deepened. And that's one thing that maybe I didn't point out. From a Buddhist perspective, it's not like we have to... Emptiness is also not another thing. Ultimately, it's not a philosophy or anything. It's just the nature of how things are when you strip them of our concepts and ideas about things. And so the Buddha came to this realization fully in his meditation. Um, I'm going to pull this up for a second. And he had a way of expressing that experience of his Buddha nature. 
So what he said was, profound, peaceful, beyond constructs, luminous and unconditioned. I found a nectar like Dharma here in the forest, and I'm just going to kind of stay silent here, which was his first teaching, and that's when he was requested to teach. Um, so the fact that he was silent is a teaching in itself, showing the pr profundity of this view, because the view is not something you can express with words. It has to be experienced. But these words, profound, peaceful, beyond constructs, luminous, unconditioned, these are the, the uh, qualities of what appears once we strip away what we're not. So this is another way to talk about Buddha nature. Buddha nature is our fundamental essence when everything's stripped away what is not that. And so what do I mean by that? Um, our concepts of things, our judgments, uh, our emotional reactivity, um, all of it, right? So we have to get to a certain point through Buddhist study to just understand in one way and have an experience that's causing pain for us. So if that's still a stretch for us, I would suggest uh, uh, reflecting on the first noble truth more, on dukkha, you know, which is the Buddha's first teaching, where he said, reflect on dukkha and, and how it comes up in your life and the subtleties of it. And this helps us to see um, what's getting in our way. It's sort of like, you know, we can have a, uh, something in our eye, like a, like a small dust, and we're just looking everywhere and searching, where is this? What's wrong with this? So we have to look, we have to see, what is that dust? So the Buddha, that was his very first teaching. Actually, he didn't teach on Buddha nature first. He taught on that. He taught on suffering. He taught on dukkha. So there's a reason for that. But later, he taught on Buddha nature. Why? Because we need to gain confidence in this as a practitioner. And making it more simple now, we basically need to gain confidence that we're basically good, that we're basically okay. And so to me, this is a really radical view. Because it's opposite the idea of original sin. It's opposite the idea that we are fucked up and we need to improve. This is why uh, self-help things don't work so well. Because they're all in this improvement department, the self-improvement department. And why, what separates it from the Dharma. So to me, when, uh, to me if, if self-improvement is being taught as Dharma, it's not Buddha Dharma. Though the Buddha did teach provisional teachings, I want to be clear. For instance, watching the breath is a provisional teaching. It's not an ultimate teaching on Buddha nature. It's just a teaching that leads us to uncovering the Buddha nature. So I don't want to demean those also. Those are really important, right? Because if I just say, recognize Buddha nature, none of us, myself included, are going to be able to do it. So the Buddha taught all these skillful means, ethical guidelines, keeping compassionate, loving behavior, watching the breath, watching the body, right? The four foundations of mindfulness. These are all uh, methods. Um, but if we, if we grasp onto the method, just like we would grasp onto the bell, we also lo we lose the, what do you say, the forest for the trees or something like that? Is that or did, I, did I get it right? So, so it's like that. So we have to also know what are we looking towards. And like I said, the view. So Buddha nature represents the extremely positive news that our essence, no matter how many mistakes we make, is not fundamentally flawed. That's another way to put it. So to me personally, when I sit down and meditate now, I think about this view. I think about what, what if I give myself the credit that at my essence, I mean, maybe I'm not seeing that essence right now, but at my essence, which is possible, there's nothing to improve. And yet I'm still sitting here meditating. And I meditate to uncover that. So when we talk about Buddha nature, it's a very different view of how we meditate. Because we're not simply meditating to become someone or to become something different or to become better, or 
to be more good. We're already good. We're just simply removing all of the obscurations to seeing that. Right? And that might seem like a subtle difference, but it's actually major. So from this perspective, what happened? You know, I could say, like, what happened? Because I don't know about you, but, there, you know, I'm not, like, I'm, you know, I'm letting you know I train in this view, but I don't have this view about myself all the time. Sometimes I go into low self-confidence and, and also all kinds of other crazy mind states and, and disturbing ones and ones that, you know, really I get caught up in. Uh, so what happened? So what happened is we lost track of this. Somehow we got caught up in the concepts and projections of how we view the outside world how we view self, and even the fact that we're objectifying our experience in general, that we objectify that there's an outside world. So this is why the teachings on emptiness are really important. But I'm not going to say too much on emptiness, I just wanted to introduce it. Then you can, I could recommend some books if you want to study it more. Um, but it's really, it's really useful to start to understand um, what are we projecting and how. Because this allows us to slowly uncover this essence, right? And so first we might start with something just watching the breath, watching thoughts that were so strong, that we thought were so real and we took so personal, become like balloons, you know, just floating through the, the sky of mind. This is incredibly useful. Why? Because we start to see there's a potential to uncover our Buddha nature. That's it. In one way, when I'm, I'm saying all these kind of, you know, maybe complex philosophical things, in one way it's so simple. When awareness knows its own nature, which is nothing whatsoever, what else do we need? We're free. So all this is talking about freedom. When we talk about Buddha nature, it's talking about freedom. When we talk about awakening, it's talking about freedom. So the Buddha gave some examples, or actually no, these are examples uh, that came later, some of them. Some of them are from the Buddha. Some of them are in the Uttara Tantra, which is, there's some direct texts uh, on Buddha nature. Um, so some of these examples, uh, which I think are useful to contemplate, and I wanted to leave with you tonight too. Um, the first one is like the, like the sun as it's shining behind a bank of clouds. And, and, and so this, the sun represents our Buddha nature. The clouds rep represent what obscure it, right? And so I, I was just in San Francisco for the holidays and uh, didn't see the sun much <laughs> that whole time. And I grew up in the Bay Area. So I remember that kind of vividly. And, I remember feeling sometimes, like you, I remember thinking or maybe having the experience of like forgetting the sun, because it might be like a week of clouds, like thick clouds, and you just forget that the sun is there. You know it's there, but you kind of slowly forget it. And so I thought, ah, that's really a useful example, because it's kind of like that with our Buddha nature, where it's there all the time. That's what I want to point out too. It's not somewhere else, like I said, it's not on another planet. <laughs> it's not when we do something really good or become like the, a saint. It's there. Actually, it's there in even the most evil people. It's still there. It's just covered, right? So this is an example we use, and we reflect on it. What's it like if it's like the sun behind a bank of clouds? And we reflect, the sun is always there. It didn't stop shining. It's always there in the sky. The problem is there's a bank of clouds, right? So what do we need to do? That's where the path comes in. That's where we sift out and uncover what is not a part of our Buddha nature, right? That's why we meditate from a Buddhist perspective. So the next example is uh, like butter and milk. And I think this is a Tibetan example because they like butter <laughs> culturally. So this is, this is the process of you know, churning the milk 
and then you know sifting off uh, I guess some part I've never done it so <laughs> from milk so sifting off some part of it and then the butter comes as a process of that churning right so this is an analogy also to represent the path our path of meditation we're churning uh, uh, the milk we're, we're doing this process of sifting to produce the pure butter or our Buddha nature the third example I really like is one of uh, a gold, uh, golden ore. So you have the ore with the raw gold in it, but what's included is also rock, other minerals, dirt, probably other kinds of substances. So the goldsmith, their process is to remove uh, what's, what's extraneous to the gold. And then that becomes the dross, right? So they remove the ore that's not the gold. And then what do they have? They have that pure gold that you know, we know as jewelry and all the other things we use gold for. But the premise here is that gold was always gold, whether it was in the you know, unrefined ore or not. It didn't change. It still was gold. It's always going to be gold. And so this is the analogy for our Buddha nature as well. We need some process to remove what's not the gold, but it doesn't change the gold. It doesn't change what is fundamentally our essence, right? So again, just to reiterate, um, I find this extremely positive news. To me, this really changed my Dharma practice. I think the first, I heard about Buddha nature pretty early on, but I didn't take it that seriously. And it's, as you can see, it's not an easy thing to grasp or to come into a connection with. I actually feel we come into a connection with it in combination with learning about it, and, and, and you know, as we're doing now, but also the, the, the more our meditation practice grows. And there's, there's this, there's kind of something that comes out which we start to see, oh, okay, the possibility that this is true, right? So it has to come through experience too. But I remember the first 10 years um, just really struggling of my practice. And the, I mean, I still struggle, but in a different way. Um, and really struggling with this, the same idea I was, I was you know, saying earlier, which is we're often just really trying to become somebody or really become something we're not. You know, we want to get rid of everything that we dislike or that is causing pain or that, you know, the thoughts we don't like or whatever. So the number one thing I hear with new meditators is, uh, how do I clear my mind? Or how do I get rid of thoughts? And I say, you don't. It's a pointless endeavor. You really don't need to. Why? Thoughts aren't the problem. It's our relationship to those thoughts, right? And, at, and, at, and, and when it comes to this kind of teaching, it's also the thoughts aren't the Buddha nature. Actually, in their essence, they are. But <laughs> the way we're experiencing now is not. And so simply through doing the process of you know, the clouds clearing, or the, the, the milk being churned, or the removal of, of the dross from the pure gold, we start to know our own nature, right? So another quick, uh, not a quick, but one thing I wanted to mention, and then um, maybe we'll do some Q&A and just discussion more. So... Another way to think about this, and I think to start to relate to it where we're at, uh, besides, of course, like in our meditation practice, I think you all are catching that. That's really the bridge here, right? Uh, but I find it does need the view. Like I said, if we don't have this view or we haven't thought about it and reflected on it, uh, it's easy for us to become like aimless with the meditation. We're just sitting and then 10 years later, we're like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> right, and I, I know that might hit close to home for some of you. So I, I it's not a, it's, you shouldn't feel ashamed of that, and it's not an insult. I, I've done the same thing, so it's just part of it. So um, 
one thing I wanted to mention is mm, there's this quote I love. I put it in this writing on Buddha nature. So Jitsun Khandra Rinpoche, who's a really wonderful uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher, she um, she said, how do we know where, how, or what intrinsic, intrinsic, intrinsic wisdom is? The answer is simple. It is the basic wisdom mind, or Buddha nature, that discerns what is good and what is harmful to us. The intrinsic awareness that tells us we're at the edge of a roof and shouldn't step any further, or that knows when to stop holding the match as we light a candle. So we call this intrinsic potential for discernment Buddha nature. So this is another really, I think, relatable, very relatable way to understand it. And also to see it in others. Because one of the reflections we do on Buddha nature is, of course, trying to see it in ourselves, because I think it brings up a deep sense of, of inner uh, value and worth. But we also try to see it in others. Just in the potential, what do others do? Even dictators and people who do really evil things in the world, they're still looking for happiness. I mean, of course, they're looking for it in the wrong places, and they're doing the wrong actions, but they're still looking. And so when I look at my life, uh, uh, it's like that. You know, I'm always looking for some way to create what I think of as happiness and to remove what I think of as pain. So in a way, this shows our underlying discernment. And what Jetson Khandaramshay is pointing out is that underlying discernment is the Buddha nature. And so sometimes as, as kind of beginner and intermediate meditators, we don't have any choice but to do that. So this is where we, we follow our discernment around the causes of happiness and removing the causes of suffering, right? She said even really basic things, like we shouldn't step any further or we're going to fall off a roof. This is actually coming from the discernment of our Buddha nature. So one reason I wanted to bring this up is this can become part of our reflection that we have it. Because it might seem really abstract, all the other things I'm saying. So we have to make it really pragmatic and real for us. That this is our foundation. Now one thing I want to say is, we also have to think of its opposites. I'm not going to name all of them, but let's say it's not Buddha nature and we're originally screwed up. We have to think about what the implications are that, of that are. First of all, that would mean we could never ever change. Things would be static, right? It's definitely a very pessimistic view. It's very depressing, <laughs> so I don't think it's very hopeful or useful. But also it's not true, because we can see how do we find meaning? We find meaning through looking for avenues for joy, for happiness. But of course we get caught up in ideas and views where certain things are not going to produce happiness, but we're confused about it, and that's part of the confusion too. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the mere thought or wish or aspiration to move towards well-being. Right? And that's something fundamental to, to our humanness and fundamental to our Buddha nature. So at its most practical, our Buddha nature affords us the potential to grow, evolve, and embody our genuine goodness. Really, that's what the teaching is saying here. So I think I'm going to leave it there, but um, you know, really uh, what I would say is, is reflect on this. And then, of course, you know, what I did want to talk about tonight, we'll see if there's not too many questions. You know, awareness. Awareness is our gateway into this, right? If we talk now pra practical, pragmatic, how do we uncover this Buddha nature? Awareness is fundamental to that Buddha nature. And so simply in meditation, like I already taught during the, the guided meditation, we're simply getting used to this awareness. Because everybody has awareness, every being. The problem is many beings just, they're not, they're not cultivating that. They don't know it's there. It's sort of hidden, similar to our Buddha nature, right? It's just covered. Right? So anyways, I think I'll stop there because maybe we can draw out what's coming up for you and make it 
really applicable to what's on your mind tonight as you hear this. I like to do that because sometimes I could just rant and then it's not applicable to you. Yeah. Is there a relationship between uh, or a role in uncovering Buddha, Buddha nature with faith, great faith? And how does great faith influence the uncovering? Or does and or does Buddha nature help create great faith? Mm. That's a really good question. What do you mean by faith? How do you define Not it? Not belief. Yeah. <laughs> so not belief, but like... Steadfast awareness, just... Yeah. Unknowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's kind of how I think of faith. Actually, we have different kinds of faith in Buddhism. Like, uh, usually there's like three, four, or five types. The first one is appreciation, which is kind of where I'm at right now. I'm just working with appreciation. And then that develops into like more conviction of something. So let's just say appreciation of the Dharma, right? We could just start there. Then that develops into conviction of the Dharma as our experience grows. So I think that's what you're talking about, right? Then that, in, as it grows into the third and fourth, it becomes like uh, uh, incontrovertible, like even the Buddha could come in front of us and say, oh, it's totally bullshit what you're thinking. And we know, no, no, Buddha, you're wrong. That's when the faith is really developing. And then the fourth is when it becomes completely non-conceptual and experiential. I think that's what you're pointing to partly, yeah? I just want to make sure we're on the same page. All of those. All of those. Okay, good. So the question was around, Buddha, do you need faith in Buddha nature? Or that's where I was kind of a little lost to. In your practice... As you walk around every day, as you, this faith awareness is, is just a strengthening awareness. Is that, and the trust in that, yeah. is, is, is that faith. And if you don't have that at the beginning, yeah. it's like you got to sort of trick yourself in yeah. practicing, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying, yeah, for sure. Thank you for asking this, by the way. It's a great question. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to talk on it, but it's good. Yeah, um, that's exactly it, and I think we, we have to start somewhere. So we start with hearing about it. Like for some people maybe in the room, this is the first time they've heard about something like this. For some of you, you've heard about it a bunch of times. And then we develop an appreciation for it. Just like a person that we see and meet and we appreciate their qualities, right? And, and this has, I think this has nothing to do with religion or spirituality. It's just like, a, and I hear you saying that too. It's a very basic thing where we know when something's real and when it hits us. And we, and we appreciate that. And then through our own, as our own experience develops, because we appreciate something, we want to get to know it. And then as we get to know it, we start to develop that second type of faith, which is more like conviction which comes uh, in this path in Buddhism as a combination of learning, reflection, and meditation. And then our conviction grows. Then it becoming kind of incontrovertible is when not, it's not just the learning and ideas. You really have a strong sense of Buddha nature in your bones, in your being, through meditation, right? 
And then, of course, the fourth one is really closer to when you've awakened into that Buddha nature. Like, it's, it's, it's about to bloom. So, yes, for sure. But I think it's like we have to... I think these, these types of ways of describing are useful because it, it, it shows that it's like... A, it's not a leap, actually, into initially into, like we were saying, belief. It sort of starts with an appreciation. I think belief can be helpful like in the short term. The but traditional yeah. leap of faith is um, you just believe in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. Exactly, it's yeah. It's pretty much, in my mind, still in the realm of it's a leap, but it's still a conceptual leap. Yeah, definitely, yeah. As opposed to experiential. Exactly, yeah, that's where this is different. But I think it can start with a little bit of a conceptual leap, but like an appreciation. It's based off of like, you hear this and it's, if it rings true for you, or it seems like, wow, that's interesting, I wanna know more about that. Or nothing else makes sense and this seems to. Oh. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To me, that's kinda of where I go, because what I like to do, and this is, I highly recommend if you have the mind for this and you like doing this, you know, um, I like to reflect on what are the other possibilities? Like often when I reflect on one of the things that trigger a lot of Westerners in Buddhism, which is rebirth, I just like to teach on and reflect on, well, what are the other possibilities? And are those any more likely? You know, and, and, and I think these are really good to do because it's not, it's not for finding an answer, right? Like I was saying, it's for the inquiry itself because it builds our confidence in knowing reality more as it is. So yeah, yeah. Thank yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I'd like you to deepen that you said empty, being empty or emptiness is not nothing. Yeah. And I kind of tried to grasp and understand a little more. I don't, could you deepen that? Sure. And, and just off the bat, I would say, like, this is the really the, you know, it's a conf it can be quite confounding as a concept first. So it requires a lot of study and, and kind of engagement that way. So I think. I mean, just to give you some context, I, I still don't have a great understanding of emptiness, but the first five years of studying Buddhism, I was just completely confused. So that's just, I just want to state that and normalize it a little bit. So, so emptiness is, ultimately, it's, it's, it's expressing, it's a word in Buddhism, it's a concept, it's a whole philosophy built around it and practices of insight, helping us to get into that experience, but it's really describing just how things are. When we, when we remove um, uh, the projections about them being permanent and independent. And so our mind works. Now, no, this is what we have to investigate, because what the premise is, is what's happening is more of an innate grasping towards permanence and independence. And independence, I mean, that's, that things don't lean or that they're not in relationship. So this, this is very subtle, what it's talking about. But what emptiness is essentially saying is things do not exist uh, in a permanent, independent way, right? And also we could say things don't exist in that way, but they still appear. So we're not denying appearance, and that's why it's not nothing or nihilistic, okay. right? Okay. So things still appear to us, but we can see, and I'll give some, some, some other examples, we can see that... Um, we don't all have the same experience with what appearances are. We sometimes assume we are, but we're really, really not. So another way to put this is there actually is no universal objective reality from a Buddhist perspective in the sense that let's just take water. 
Water is a, a liquid to us that our bodies need, that we drink. It's a home to fish, you know. To, they say in Buddhism to other beings that we can't see but are included in Buddhist cosmology. It appears as uh, like disgusting things or sometimes like fire. So it just depends on the person or the being perceiving. But we could just see it in our own experience. Fish, it's their home. It's not our home. We don't view it like that. So what is water? Does water have an objective reality? So, so the emptiness of the water is the emptiness of its objective reality. And this applies to everything from what we think of uh, 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 a certain food, a certain dwelling, um, perception. a perception or emotions, everything, Function. everything. Okay, because I was thinking to myself, you know, I saw the new film of uh, Ram Dass, Becoming Nobody. Yeah. And it really encapsulated for me the path toward death, becoming nobody and shedding the identities and the functions as the human yeah. being. And so I, I was thinking of nothing and nobody in the same mm. arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I got you. I didn't get it. Thank yeah, you. no, but that's really good you're reflecting like that. Because that's what we do. I mean, what, what we tend to do is we, you know, just from a Buddhist perspective, just beings, human beings, we waffle between uh, 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 materialism or sort of like, you know, fixating on, on and objectifying things and nihilism. And we go back and forth. And Buddhism is neither. It's saying it's beyond both of those, uh, what reality actually is. And yeah, and sometimes in the languaging it's tough because like, yeah, becoming nobody could sound like becoming nothing. But if you break down the word, it's like no body. I'm not my body. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. But they appear. So we're not denying the appearance on the other side. When we have to work with the appearance. My teacher often says, um, yes, the, like we use the, the analogy of a dream, like to represent our current reality. It's like a dream in the sense that when we fall asleep and we dream like, you know, we could dream we, uh, uh, we're, that we're a teenager and we grow up and we get married and have kids and die all in one dream. And then we wake up and it's all gone. You know, it's, it's, it, we wake up and realize, oh, it's just a dream. So they use that as an analogy to represent our experience here in, in our current reality, which is that we, we take things to be true as they appear to us, which is the misperception. And so our job as a meditator is to realize that misperception. And why? Just to make it very pragmatic, because it's causing us suffering. That is the root of suffering from a Buddhist perspective. Yeah. And, and, and in that sense... Uh, what we see, what we experience, isn't the problem. It's all about our relationship to it. And then, of course, as I'm implying, this has to be brought to a very deep, experiential level. It can't just be a concept. But we start with a concept. Concept is okay, because we need... That's the finger, right? We need that. Otherwise, we're totally lost. Because this is like, from a Buddhist perspective, our habits of reifying our reality... And, and creating and believing our projection. It's like we're the movie projector, but, and we don't realize it, right? So our habit of that is so strong because they say we've had you know, beginningless lives believing that. And so the, the habit's very strong, and that's why we need equally strong practices of awareness of you know, all this stuff we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's good to keep thinking about it, yeah. Don't break your brain, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'd also like to say that 
practice and whatever practice anyone does in religions and faiths, if you're doing it in order to get somewhere, yeah, this in, then you're not being who you are. Like, you, you do have to accept yourself as this human being with flaws and bad thoughts and good thoughts and... Where do you, where do you... to escape it. Where do you hear the not accepting, maybe? I didn't hear not accepting. Oh, you're just, you're just standing out as a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, just wondering, because then we could work it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, no. sometimes, you know, a, a famous quote from a teacher I really like, he says... Uh, there's no such thing as communication. There's just constructive miscommunication and, and unconstructive miscommunication. So that's why it's important to talk, you know, because we're, we're, we're basically just, you know, hopefully constructively miscommunicating with each other. But yeah, definitely. No, definitely. That's what, that's what I was saying. That's the principle of Buddha nature, because there's actually nothing to improve. But we do need to do something to uncover what that nature is, because right now we're having the misperception, right? But that doesn't mean we're flawed, right? It's just sort of... It's like we wouldn't fault the, the, the clouds for blocking the sun. It's just natural. But they're still blocking the sun. I want the damn sun, right? <laughs> I'm going to move to L.A. to get the sun. <laughs> yeah, but good, good. Yeah, good reflections, yeah. Well, there's I wanted a little bit more explanation because I was actually recently thinking about what is the relationship between emptiness and Buddha nature. Mm. So it was interesting to me that you said that, but I think Buddha nature is empty, means that we are empty of, of existence, but I don't know that it's the same thing as emptiness. And it's empty of true existence. Of true so existence. it's not existence, right? Just empty of like an independent existence. So the Buddha nature is also empty of of. of true existence or independent existence. So it's just, just uh, but there is a difference here. So I will say this, just to make it clearer. Buddha nature is the, at its essence, when once it's come to its fruition, which we call Buddhahood or enlightenment, it's the u full unification of clarity and emptiness. So the emptiness of this is not the same as the emptiness of our mind, because this doesn't have awareness and clarity. We do. And I'm not trying to offend the bell here. It, I, I doubt it does, right? It might, I don't know. So, so that's what it is. So Buddha nature is kind of the, the, the essential unification of our own, what we call clarity, uh, but it actually just means our ability to perceive, right? So there's, there's appearance happening, and it's the unification of that with its nature, which is nothing whatsoever or this, you know, uh, empty of true existence or empty of independent existence. So the Buddha nature, it, the emptiness is the, is, it's not like a quality of the Buddha nature, but it, and it, you're correct, it's not exactly the Buddha nature because it's not just empty, it's also clear and empty. So that's the distinction I would make. Or we can say knowing and empty. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So you and I can know, right? So what's that knowing? without a knower. That's the Buddha nature. Actually, that's, that's good. Let's leave it there. Yeah. The knowing without the knower. That's, that's Buddha nature. Yeah. You have to quote me on this one. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, it comes from my teacher. Uh, the knowing without the knower. But again, it's, it's a little tricky here because we have Buddha nature as a capacity 
or like a potential, and then Buddha nature in its full fruition, which we call enlightenment. So right now we're not experiencing that. We're experiencing, we have Buddha nature as like a seed that can be sort of brought out or uncovered, right? There's different ways we look at it in Buddhism, sometimes as a seed, sometimes as it's fully ripened and we're simply uncovering it. So we can look at it these different ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's you know that's a good question because I often reflect because some translators have translated it like that, like innate goodness or basic goodness. But I think good is a really tricky word for us because good imply good implies morality, mm-hmm. and actually Buddha nature is beyond morality, mm-hmm. in the sense of like what's fixed as good and fixed as bad. Because even good and bad, from the level of of Buddhahood, um, are um, uh, concepts, right? But on the level of where at where we're at right now, it's important. You know, we do need to pay attention to what's 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 relatively useful and unuseful, right? Or constructive and destructive, but or unconstructive. Um, but yeah, we I think goodness here means like uh, uh, we use the word pure actually. So some maybe that's why some tr- translators use goodness instead of pure because pure can be. Uh, it's also one of those tricky words in English. When you look it up, it has a few different definitions. One is the, the one I don't use. I don't mean purity this way, which is the purity of like where certain people have a quality and others are excluded, like the way it's been used sometimes in, in religious connotations. But in Buddhism, what it means is, is more uh, 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 the, the definition that like unstained or, or that it, it doesn't have to improve. It just, it just is already, uh, uh, has the qualities. So we would more say Buddha nature is like innate purity in that way. And so in Vajrayana Buddhism, which is a, you know, a tradition we practice in the Tibetan tradition, uh, uh, some of the teachings and practices of the Buddha, we're training in that innate purity as a view, as a meditation, and as a conduct. And that's essentially what makes the, the Vajrayana very unique, is it's the view, meditation, and conduct all form around training in pure perception. Um, I would also say that this teaching on Buddha nature is, is a bridge to that Vajrayana view as well. Sort of functions like that. That's why you don't hear it in the Pali Canon. You don't hear Buddha nature. But you kind of hear it in other ways, just not directly pointed out. Anyways, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, your experience or your awareness of your Buddha nature um, before you became a monk, while you were a monk? <laughs> And you know, you're not a monk? <laughs> you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, how different is it? I mean, we get this idea that if you're in a monastic community, a lot of the things that we have to deal with every day just kind of fall away. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you probably have to deal with the same things. Now? Well, just I just was wondering how your um, how you felt about your Buddha nature in all of these different scenarios. So at its root, at its ground, my Buddha nature hasn't changed, and it and it can't, I can't improve it or make it worse. That your attitude about it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out, just to further elucidate on our topic here, and and I I, I have conviction in that, <laughs> or maybe closer to appreciation. I'll be honest, um, appreciation that it can't be improved and it can't be uh, uh, demeaned or or reduced. 
but yeah, my attitude or experience of it <laughs> has been different. And I wouldn't equate it so much to monk or not monk. I think just like years on the cushion and years practicing. And like I said, to me, I don't have some big realization or, or deep meditation experience. But what I do know is that uh, when, the, when, when I have those, those moments where there's just a, a knowing with less kind of in the way of that knowing, and, and the awareness is there, and maybe I'm you know, in a retreat meditating more than normal or something like that, um, it, 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 it clicks. And I really see the possibility that at my essence, I, that, that, I'm, that, it's not, that I'm not flawed, that, you know, the, uh, uh, that I'm not my thoughts, and et cetera. And so even just a basic shamatha meditation where we just watch the breath and, you know, the thoughts calm down. And the reason is because, you know, we stop, first of all, we stop feeding them, but also they're not really fundamental to our nature. But um, my attitude has definitely shifted over the years just with more practice. I don't know if it had to do with monk or not monk. I mean, some of the hardest years of my life were being a monk because there's so much, you know, identity shift with that. And there's also so much like, you know, you're doing something really different than the rest of the world. Um, but I got a chance to cultivate a lot of practice because I got to go into more retreat during that time and to take advantage of more study opportunities. So I would say that was really the advantage with that for me. And also keeping uh, uh, boundaries that were helpful for me to look at my mind because really all we're talking about here when we're talking about that bridge of meditation is any practice that helps us to stop doing this so much and to start doing this more. And what I'm doing with my hands for those in the recording is looking out or looking in. So really, that's what we want. We just want some framework to help us look more inwards. When we look at all the teachings of the Buddha, that's really what they are. They're just skillful means to help us look inwards. Whether they're ethical boundaries of a monk, or mindfulness practice, or uh, uh, loving-kindness practice, or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know if I answer your question, but yeah. 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 That's, like, you, how do you feel about this new age like idea? Oh, the thoughts creating reality? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think they're just basically taking it from Buddhism. I mean it's yeah. It's, right, but okay. <laughs> but you you see a difference? I uh, like to hear Yeah, a little bit. I think it's a little more daunting because then it's like it's like this anxiety of like, okay, well I have to stop my thought process. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that to happen, you know, uh-huh. you start thinking about train wrecks or whatever. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, you mean like the manifestation culture? Oh, okay, yeah, that's a little different, yeah. Honestly, like, I don't know if I have a judgment so much about the practice of manifestation itself, though I do think it's, it's, uh, I'm skeptical. Um, So, but I'm more critical around the commerce of it. Like, you know, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there these days, you know? And, and, so, um, and so we have to be really discerning about our spiritual path. And I think it comes back more to fundamentals of like view. Like what do we want to bring about? Like I was talking about in the beginning. Like really where are we aiming uh, our purpose? And like what, do we f- what are we going to find meaningful in our life? And it seems like a lot of that kind of reduces down to material manifestation, which is very low-hanging fruit, in my opinion. So that's really, you know, the only judgment I have around it. But, um, yeah, in Buddhism, we would say our thoughts create our reality, not in the sense like, yeah, you can, like, things can come about through your thoughts, 
but it's more like we're projecting our reality. That's that's more what it's alluding to. As far as like uh, manifesting things like material things, from a Buddhist perspective, you have to have the karmic imprint to re- to receive that. So this is a, a a good point, which is a lot of the times in the West we have this idea that we work a job and we earn that money because we worked a job. Buddhism says no, 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 no. The job was the condition. You had to have created the cause before for that. So when people manifest things, they would have had to create the cause for that. Now, the condition might be a really positive mind state, and then when they're thinking about that, they're doing more to get that whatever BMW or whatever they want, right? So I don't know. I think it's like that's how I would describe it. It can happen, but there's, there's more at play than just simply, I'm just going to think really good thoughts and it's going to happen, right? Right. Yeah. Does that, does that click with you? Yeah. 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 Well, I'd just like to build on that. Uh, years ago, uh, I saw that film, The Secret. Yeah. And I took away from it, oh, oh, to start a gratitude journal sounds like a great idea. And I did. And I would say in six months to a year, I watched my brain cells re- readjust. Yeah. I was focusing on what I was grateful for and appreciating. Mm-hmm. And suddenly more and more and more good stuff was occurring in my world. And I, I saw it sort of as cause and effect, that I was thinking and, and, and it was happening um, within sure. my realm. It had nothing to do with materialism at all. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's to me, that's just around the, like, what we think, how the world appears to us is how we think. So, I mean, I'll just give you the opposite, which is more on my, my level. I, I live in Brooklyn, so I get on the subway. I'm like, this is a hell realm, you know? Like, it's dirty, it smells like pee. Um, I don't want to be on the subway. But, you know, and some days I don't feel like that. But, and, and what happens? Everybody on the subway looks smug. Everybody looks like they're going to, you know, fight me. And then the next day I get on and I'm like, you know, feeling in a more loving mood, more equanimous, et cetera, whatever. Maybe my did more practice that's morning, that morning. And everybody looks like an angel. So what, what is it? So that's definitely true, you know. We, we shape our world through the way we think, yeah, for sure. That's where I'm not knocking the Gratitude is an amazing practice. It's part of Buddhism. We were already talking about it. We need, you know, gratitude is... I'm, I mean, I, I just heard a study that, you know, they're doing studies on the brain with gratitude practice, and that's really heartening because... Um, Actually, you know, just to be really honest, like um, I tend not to focus on that so much. In the last few weeks, I've been really focusing on it, and and it's it's been helping me a lot. But I will say, there's a difference between genuine appreciation and gratitude and bright sighting. So so that there's a big difference here. So bright sighting is a I didn't make this term up. I don't know where it comes from, but it's simply just like trying to put roses on everything, and we're not, we're not seeing the situation for as it is. And so, it's all good. Yeah, exactly. It's all good. Yeah. We call it positive, I've heard like positivity kind of spirituality. And in one way it's helpful, so I don't want to knock it, because I think having a positive outlook affects our mood and it affects the others around us. That's a good thing. But it can also be a deep denial of the world, and that's a problem, right? So, you know, a lot of people, when they start to study Buddhism, they hear this first noble truth of dukkha or suffering and they're like, why would I want to think more about suffering? I already think so much about it. But they're misunderstanding what the teaching is pointing us towards. First of all, it's pointing us to deeper layers of dissatisfaction. So we want to get out. So we're recognizing where we're bound. 
but also what it's pointing us towards is sort of this uh, uh, like compassion, recognizing the world around us and not denying what, what reality is, but also not, but changing and transforming our habits for how we're thinking of that. Because often what we're thinking is, ooh, suffering, poor me. That's not what the first noble truth is about. It's like suffering, ah, and then widening. It's much different uh, uh, practice. Super powerful. What else? Yeah. I mean, I've asked, I've, this is a question I have for a lot of different teachers. I, I was wondering how you found your teacher and how you, if you have any advice for how to recognize if a particular Rinpoche or yeah. is your teacher or who is Guru? <laughs> That's a big question. Anyway, yeah. We need a whole talk just on that. You know, because what it does is it, you know, what it does is it opens up the can of worms about um, teacher-student relationship. What is a guru? Is it useful? Do we need that? You know, which is big debates here in the West now, and I have a lot of opinions on that. (laughs) But just to go, (laughs) no, 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 it's fine. I'm just kind of so just to talk on a little bit on what you're saying. So I have, I have many teachers, like probably 30 that I've studied with, some just like short teachings, and then I have two root teachers. Um, and so the first one was more, um, <laughs> I, I saw his picture for the first time when I, when I, I met a, my first teacher who taught me meditation, and then, um, and also I kind of like, I learned about Tibetan Buddhism through him. And he had studied with my first root teacher, who I didn't recognize as my root teacher at that time. And he showed me a picture of him, and I had a lot of anger and aversion. (laughs) Yeah, uh, which I don't like to admit. But um, it was like a very strong reaction, because it was kind of a fierce picture, too. Like, he was based, it was like a picture digging into your ego and and saying, I see you. And so my my reaction was aversion, because it was like the ego was like, oh, I don't want to be seen, leave me alone, right? And then um, somehow I, I was kind of exploring Tibetan Buddhism more deeply and I just was calling different places and I ended up talking to someone at a, at a center that actually was the, founded by that teacher, right? And, and so I ended up going there and connecting with another Tibetan monk who became one of my teachers who I lived with for three years. And then, uh, and then, and then Lama Zopa, the root teacher that I was describing, um, I just started to have, you know, I read his books and then started, you know, his picture changed for me. Like when I saw it, I actually felt devotion. And, and it was a little bit more like a spontaneous uh, relationship where it was just like, I didn't think that much about it. It's just like his picture made me cry. Being in his presence was like really profound. I couldn't understand what he was saying for the first year of going to his talks because he has a really strong accent and like kind of the way he does things. And then, but I don't think it was that. I think it was like there was some karmic obscuration. There was some obscuration there. But anyway, so that was the story with that was I didn't like check him very much or, 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 you know, analyze. It just sort of was the way it was. It's very similar with my second root teacher with Soknir Mache as well. But it was a little bit different because by the time I met Soknir Mache, I was a monk. I'd studied Dharma uh, for for 10 or so years. And um, so there was a lot of discernment around what he was saying and and being able to pick out, wow, this person knows the Dharma in an extremely profound way. And on top of that, for me and my experience, his being was so unique and so so different than any other human being I had met. 
um, that it was incontrovertible, it was like obvious this person has some deep experience of the Buddhist path, not just knowledge, deep experience. And then again, kind of like same, like a devotional quality, like just a natural sense of this person is uh, someone I want to be around. So, so, and then on top of that, opening up things in my life that um, like deep obstacles I had that I didn't know I had and, and him pointing that out and, and helping me to navigate those. Um, so yeah, I was kind of different with each one. And then some teachers I have were more just like I studied with, um, they're knowledgeable, I enjoyed, you know, I just found them to be really good scholars and practitioners. I want to study with them or receive certain teachings from them. So it can be a range. I often say, you know, just to go into the teacher-student thing, I say we, we often need a range of teachers. And, and what that might mean is, yes, there's like well-known, usually the, it doesn't mean someone, because someone's well-known, they're realized. I just want to point that out. But often the people who end up coming here on tours and stuff like that, who do have deep experience and are lineage holders, they have lots of students too. So we don't get to see them that often, but they could still be our teacher. And then we have people under that, like people who are more accessible, uh, who are also knowledgeable, who also have compassion and some experience. And I would say, uh, for me, I, I usually tell people if they want to study Buddhism deeply in a certain Buddhist tradition, go to the culture that that's practiced in. Uh, we're still baking here, in my opinion. Uh, Buddhism, there's, no, there's not an American Western Buddhism yet. And I know some people are going to argue with that you know, if they hear this. I just, I just think we're in the process of, we're babies, like being fed. And this, this is how it happened in every country. It took hundreds of years to really formulate. Um, so I feel we're at the stage where we need to take the, the, the really strong milk and grow. And that means studying with uh, uh, Asian teachers who, who are lineage holders in different traditions or whatever tradition we're in, we want to study in and practice in. And then have Western teachers to help bridge that. Because often that's the problem for us, is it's, it's tough to bridge culturally sometimes. So we need both. And when we're choosing teachers, the first thing to look for is compassion. And compassion doesn't mean googly-eyed, smiling all the time. It means they see you and they want you to awaken. That's what compassion means in Buddhism. It means they care for you so deeply, they'll even say something to you that mm, you might not like them for. But they're doing it for you. Right? Not for their own pocket or, or their own uh, uh, you know, proclivity or whatever. Um, this, after compassion, uh, uh, knowledge of the Dharma uh, and, and experience is really important. Yeah. Like having some taste. And I think we can, I think we can see, see that. I think sometimes we get caught up in charisma, but I think... Um, I think when we practice more, we can see through it. So that's where finding a teacher is kind of a paradox because it also relies on us having learned and practiced. Because when our learning and practice develops more, it's going to be easier to spot a qualified teacher. Where initially, when we're in the beginning, we need a teacher, uh, but at the same time, uh, we don't have the knowledge so much to know what to look for. So it's a little tricky. And that's why I think Dharma books and, and things like that can be really healthy and also not, um, we don't have to devote to one person right away. Like, let that happen. Unless that, like, some experience really is very intuitive and obvious to us. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite topics. That's why I, I said it needs a whole nother teaching. But, <laughs> but I think we covered enough. Yeah, any, any th last thoughts? Comments, complaints?
<laughs> the complaint box is out there. <laughs> so um, thank you all so much. You really have been a, a, an extremely attentive uh, and, and just you know, awesome group. I really appreciate coming here. Um, maybe we'll dedicate the merit. Um, did you have anything? Maybe we'll dedicate the merit first, and then if you have announcements, is that okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or do, was it something around? I'll just do the yeah, we'll do it after the dedication. Yeah. All right. So I don't know. Do you feel closer to Buddha nature? <laughs> you do. All right. I do. But it's more just because I get to sit up here and you know. Closer to inquiry around it. More inquiry is what you're saying. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that's powerful. So we're going to dedicate um, that energy. The energy of all the reflection, inquiry, meditation, discussion that we did tonight. I'm just recognizing this Buddha nature as a potential, not just us, but all beings. And really feeling a, not only an appreciation, but a sense of like deep love for others in that. What's it like if we see everyone's Buddha nature as opposed to what we dislike about them or what they're showing us on the outside? We start to attune more towards their actual potential to be fully free, fully compassionate, fully loving. So we'll just dedicate the merit in our hearts, just sharing it with all beings and with the wish that an aspiration that we may know our Buddha nature in order to help others to know that, in order to be an example in the world of someone who's awake. Without pretense. Just there. No big deal. And others can mirror that because they also have the potential. So just taking a moment to let that settle, especially if there's a feeling of warmth around that, a feeling of connection or depth. Just connecting to that for a moment. Again, thank you all so much. <laughs>